it's funny like my mind was thinking about the deep slab problem but i don't think i ever really mentioned it at that moment i knew we were in the worst spot to be in an avalanche you know we were going uphill locked into our toe pieces skins on really vulnerable state no way to ski off the slab i saw the slope fracture out in front of me i saw lots of cracks This is John Pruce, and you're listening to the Avalanche Hour Podcast. You are tuned in to another episode of the Avalanche Hour Podcast. I'm your host, Caleb Merrill. The Avalanche Hour Podcast is proudly presented by MND Safety, a global leader in avalanche hazard management, and our good friends at Ten Barrel Brewing. Drink beer outside with additional support from InterWest Insurance. The goal of this podcast is to create a stronger community through the sharing of stories, knowledge, and news amongst people who have a curious fascination with avalanches. We've got a great episode queued up for you today. I do have to apologize to the guest, John Pruce, for the delay in releasing this episode. Um, We recorded this over a year ago. John is a certified rock and ski guide living in Sun Valley, Idaho. And he reached out to me, wanted to share his story of a a near miss that he had with a ski partner um, in April of 2019 when he and his partner Sam were attempting to ski the nine peaks above 12,000 feet in Idaho in a single push. Um, So it was supposed to be a five-day traverse um, with some logistics to get from one place to another, Um, and they were attempting to to ski all nine peaks above 12K in Idaho. So no easy feat. Um, Along the way, uh, an avalanche was triggered, and JP reflects on the experience, brings some context to it, and uh, just does a great job of, of letting us all Uh, learn from his lesson. So without further ado, uh, here we go with John Pruce. All right, welcome to the show, JP. How's it going, Caleb? Doing well. Um, Hope you're doing well being quarantined or semi-quarantined, we were talking earlier, in, in Sun Valley there. Yeah, just catching up on a lot of house projects. We're uh, about maybe a week and a half away, about having uh, having our first baby. So we're kind of just getting everything in order and waiting for that next next step in life. Oh, that's very exciting. Congratulations to you and your, your wife. Um. We're here today to talk about a, a near-miss, close-call, avalanche accident that JP was involved in actually a year ago today from the time of recording of this episode. Of course, this episode will probably come out in the fall. Um, but JP, why don't we start out with you introducing yourself, giving us your your history, your background, and 
and your roles within the snow and avalanche and guiding world these days? Yeah, so I uh, I grew up in north central New Jersey and grew up skiing from basically when I could walk, probably like most of the people that yeah you talk to on this show. And then I uh, fast forward a little bit, went to school at Johnson State College up in Vermont, and that's kind of where I got into studying outdoor education. You know, it was a professor, Mark Puglio, who kind of, he's an IFMGA guide, who kind of, I saw the life of a guide and kind of really wanted that. And so one of the trips we had for school was to go out to Idaho, Sun Valley, Idaho, and stay at a hut for a week, get a level one avalanche education, and learn how to backcountry ski. And after I was done with that, I mean, we had came into the valley and had amazing conditions. And that just changed my life. And I knew I wanted to come back and become an intern for the company. At the time, I came back and I think a year later and interned with Sun Valley Trekking, doing a lot of the Hutmeister tasks, bringing heavy loads into the huts and tail guiding with some of the um, senior guides and just learning how to be a guide out there. So been now guiding in the area for about 10 years do ski guiding for sun valley guides the kind of newer company out of that uh, of sun valley trekking and work for them most of the winter doing avalanche education day guided trips some ski mountaineering courses um just became the operations manager for that this year and then in the summertime, I work for Sawtooth Mountain Guides, doing rock guiding in the Sawtooths, Lost Rivers, and down at the City of Rocks. And on the side, to kind of pay the bills, I have my own little landscaping company. That's just me. Kind of fills the void of spring and fall slack season. So I think that's kind of a rundown of what I do for work and a little bit about the history leading up to everything. Sure. And, uh, aspirations to go through the full AMGA program. I see you're a certified ski guide and apprentice rock and alpine guide. Yeah. So it's kind of always been kind of fluctuates from year to year, whether I'm going to go for the full pin, but I think at this point I'm going to be, trying to go for full life MGA. I'm going to try to take my rock guides exam this, this uh, fall. That's if everything goes well with this whole COVID-19 situation. Um, and then I have a long track of going through the Alpine discipline. So probably still four or five years out from that, but that's the goal. Right on. Well, it seems like you're well on your way and, have the ambition to do so. So good luck with that. Thanks. Um, so JP, let's, uh, let's think back on a, a year ago from today. Um, you and a, a good friend from the Valley, Sam, uh, headed out to, to ski the nine peaks above 12,000 feet in, in several days. Is that right? Yeah. So that was kind of, uh, the goal was to, 
ski all the nine or all the nine 12,000 foot peaks in Idaho. So that's in three different ranges, the Lemhi, the Lost River and the Pioneer Mountains. And we hadn't heard anyone of doing it all in one push before, um, you know, starting in one range, driving over to the middle of the range and then finishing the last one. Uh, lots of people have done all of them on day trips but we haven't heard of anyone doing it in one go so that was kind of uh what led us to this year's objective Pre previous years we um the last two years before this we were going to the lost rivers and just doing a ski traverse from one end to the other and goals in that were the, kind of the same we wanted to get each of the seven highest points and ski well, first climb them and then have ski descents off of them. So we did the range first year from uh, north to south, skiing most of the southern aspects, thinking it was going to be corn. And then we kind of figured out that most of the aesthetic lines are on the north face. So we reversed it the following year and had amazing conditions in both of those years. So that's kind of what led us to then want to go to the next step of doing all the 12,000 foot peaks. Mm -hmm. And so, so you'd had several years of kind of exploring the, the, is it safe to say these are kind of the outer reaches of, of regularly traveled ranges within Idaho, at least for skiing? Yeah, especially the Lem highs, just to kind of give you a little background. Um, the Lost River Range, and the Lemhi Range are some of the farthest east ranges in Idaho. And they kind of have more continental snowpack where it's fully faceted most of the year. Um, persistent slabs are the common issue. Low snows, you know, also an issue, but also causes greater likelihood to trigger those persistent weak layers. And not too many people go to them. There's like the closest town to the Lost River Range is Mackey. Mm -hmm. And I think it houses just under 400 people. So a really small town, really remote. There's only one snow tell site for the Lost River Range, and that's about 8,000 feet. So it's pretty inaccurate to try to really gain any information from it. So, you know, a lot of recon is involved and it takes even more recon because it takes an extra hour to get there in the winter time. There's a, the Trail Creek Pass is closed during the winter. So we have to go the long way around. So you, you're really not going to find anyone else in the range until really springtime. And it's just like, if you come across someone, you're just kind of like, you're just like, whoa, what are you doing here type deal. Mm -hmm. Um, so it's, it's pretty special in that, in that regard as being really remote. Yeah. It sounds like a pretty amazing place and it sounds like a really cool objective that you and Sam set out to, to ski last year. Um, so talk a little bit about the winter of, of 2019 in terms of the snowpack that you've all had, um, in the Sun Valley area. And then also what you were finding in the further reaches to the east. Yeah, so that season was probably one of the deepest seasons we have, or I shouldn't say 
probably is one of the deepest seasons we have on record. We had kind of start things off at the beginning. We had your um, common for us in the Inner Mountains. We had a common October storm that came through, laid down a couple feet of snow, and then lots of high pressure until Thanksgiving when we had that layer finally covered up. And then we just had pretty slow increment loading on top of that. So a bunch of small storms through December and January for that early season of facets just kept getting buried further and further into the snowpack, not really having any significant load to trigger it and cause widespread avalanching. So we're rolling into a deep slab problem, I think by uh, mid-January. And then, then came February. <laughs> and February, you know, the atmospheric river faucet was just left open and we had storm pound us one after another. You know, we think we, uh, we had one major storm cycle the last week of February and that dumps three to seven inches of sweet over that period. And I think we had over 50 documented D1 up to D4 avalanches. We had Galena Peak running R4, D4, um, taking out these huge old growth forests on the trim line and just being this massive avalanche. Um, we got the, I got to go up there with some of the avalanche forecasters the day after, and we got to go past the road close sign because the pass, Galena Pass was closed down uh, I kind of forget how many days, but at least four or five days. Hmm. And uh, we rolled up there the day after or day after that, that storm cycle went through and we're skinning into Galena Peak, which is a pretty flat approach. And then you start going up a pretty safe ridge the whole way up. And we got down to the kind of the bottom where you start climbing and saw debris. And to see debris in that spot was amazing i mean we were just like lost we just we lost it we're like this is amazing as an avalanche forecaster you just like that's you wait for those um those uh those cycles that produce avalanches that big so you know kind of going on a little tangent but that season was had some of the most historical avalanches that you know some of the even the um, older guides and forecasters had ever seen in the area. So, you know, it, it was a pretty amazing season for snowfall and avalanches. And then we kind of rolled into March and we had our first three consecutive nights of no overnight freezes. So then we went through this wet slab cycle. Um, we're in the lower elevation around uh, Ketchum, but big enough wet slabs that were taking out houses, knocking structures off their foundation. So that was the season leading up to this traverse. And that wet wet cycle was in mid March? Was it it was that early, huh? It started uh yeah, March eighth. Wow. I didn't realize Yeah, we had some really warm air come in. You know, a lot of uh we were in a southwest flow so mm -hmm. for our area that that's when it really um 
we get most of our snowfall in the Smoky and Boulder Mountains around town. And so that's like the, the ideal pattern for us is that southwest flow. And with that flow, you get a lot of warm, moist air coming from Hawaii. And, you know, the negative side to that is you get a lot of warm air with it. Some days, it, you know, just gets hotter than you really want it to. I don't think, I don't know if we had a rain event that year, but uh, lots of warm weather earlier than normal for us. Yeah, thinking back to that event, were you, were you kind of like flipping the switch in your mind as to like, okay, it's it's feeling more like spring now, a little bit less of a wintertime snowpack? Totally. I think um, that was one of the, the first decisions that kind of plagued my mind was I was like, all right, well, we're going through that spring diurnal phase and it's kind of like that moisture is finding its way through the snowpack and hitting that layer and it's going to either run now or it's just going to heal itself. And, uh, I think getting, you know, we were seeing those slides happen around see, six to 8,000 feet. And I mistakenly took that and transferred it to the mountains we were going to be in, which we pretty much stay 10 to 12,000 feet. Mm-hmm. So that was kind of my first downfall of uh, of looking at the season snowpack and trying to take information from what I was seeing in town and trying to think about what's going on over in the Lost Rivers. Well, when you're going into an area that has, you know, where where you have little information, you know, like extrapolations sometimes are our only tool as our best guess, right? Um, so. Well, yeah, totally. So you and Sam had been planning this trip, and I were you waiting for a weather window, or had you identified some dates that were going to work for your schedules beforehand? Yeah, that's kind of a it's good, good question or point. Um, for us, it really comes down to scheduling. I wish I wish we both had a free enough schedule that we could just be like, "Yep, this week looks good." But um, me do a lot of doing the guiding you have to plan your schedule pretty far in advance especially springtime where you have ski mountaineering trips or uh, camps lining up and for sam he works as a lawyer in town so he's got a I wouldn't say nine to five job but he's pretty strapped down and has to plan in advance on when he can take off sure Talk about Sam a little bit as a just a friend and a and a ski partner and some of the other stuff that you've done with him. Yeah, so Sam, we I met Sam. We were uh, he moved to the valley. I don't know how many years ago now, maybe six. Um, moved right next door to us, and I kind of felt like at the you know when I first saw them move in, I saw he had an AAC C sticker on the back of his truck and kind of knew it was going to be destiny that one day we'd be doing stuff together in the mountains. Found out that he likes to ski and uh, went on a couple of tours together. And uh, he pitched the idea of going to Lost River Range for an American Alpine Club Live Your Dream grant. So that's kind of where a lot of this all stemmed from. And uh, I didn't really be, I didn't ski with Sam too much before that, but I got to know him pretty well. And I know 
he uh, he thinks about things a lot before he goes and do does them, and he likes to get training and kind of practice things. So those are some some uh, you know characteristics that I like to choose in a partner, especially when you're going to go do some pretty significant uh, some some spots that have significant consequences if you make the wrong decision. So seeing that Sam put a lot of time and effort into his training and the, those made me feel pretty confident with going out with him into some of these spring skiing objectives. But besides that, it's kind of, it's strange in a way that, you know, I think maybe because I do ski guide for a living and, a lot of times I'm going out with clients that most of the time they're just learning how to do avalanche rescue, you know, in a 20 minute talk before you go out. So you're not really putting a lot of confidence into anything that they're deciding out there. It might have made me feel a little bit better with or I was using some of that to go into skiing with Sam. You know, I know he was a solid skier that could ski a lot of that terrain. Um, but I didn't have a lot of experience with him in the mountains, but I knew at the same time that he did go through trainings and he was, he was pretty into knowing and uh, being open about making decisions and expressing the thoughts he had on what he was thinking about. Mm -hmm. So a lot of those factors, I think, went into, you know, my relationship with Sam and in skiing with him. Right. And so, um, so you guys set out and the plan was for the first day to ski, to climb and ski diamond peak in the limb high range. And then originally you were going to, I think, drive over to the lost river range the next day and then start the multi-day ski traverse of the lost river range. Is that correct? Yeah. Yep. So we were going to go over to Diamond. We actually used uh, ATVs to drive in. It's pretty, a lot of these approaches are really long in the springtime. Sometimes the they're all dirt, these dirt four by four roads getting into them. So we used four by four or uh, ATVs to get in there to access it. Had a pretty um, smooth day up Diamond. We had never been up there before, but everything went to plan. We had some light snow, but no significant loading, no wind. Had okay skiing. I think the bottom skied better than the top. And we got done pretty early. We got, I think we got done before noon. So we shot over to the Lost, stopped in Mackie, kind of refueled our bodies, and kind of were like, let's just keep going. Let's, let's go into the Lost Rivers. Let's start a day early. We're ahead of time. Part of the our ambition was to kind of do it as quick as we could, as, as quick as we, jokingly, as quick as we safely could. Mm -hmm. um, so we decided to then go into the Lost Rivers and start our ascent up the Lost River Peak via Super Goalie and then drop into the Pissimurai side, the east side of it, and set up camp. And that, uh, that was pretty amazing. We didn't get to the top of the of Lost River Peak, I think, until around eight, just as the sun was starting to set. The clouds were actually starting to lift from that storm system that was in there. 
And uh, we got to our first couloir that would give us access to that east side and found a huge cornice at the top of it. And, you know, it was nighttime, pretty low likelihood of that thing just falling off. It was low freezing, but we just still weren't, we weren't willing to take that risk to be underneath that thing especially at nighttime and just like you just already start to kind of feel threatened when that sun goes down and the headlamps come out so in the previous years we kind of remembered that there were some open slopes further down or further we had to actually put our skins back on and climb a little higher and we were able to finagle our way down through the slope and get into camp late that night but because it was pretty late we uh we had a pretty uh we we slept in an extra hour the next day which isn't very long for the sleep sleeping in in springtime i think we only slept until six but most of the time you want to be kind of up moving around in camp by four because you want to beat the heat of the day when things start really moving around out there so you guys had you guys had uh you know sizable packs you had overnight gear right and that you know I'm, I'm just guessing probably you know 40 45 pound packs um how how much vert did you do that day that sounds like a pretty big day I think we ended up doing close to 10,000 mm-hmm. feet I think that day and quite quite a bit of miles mm-hmm. cool so you so you guys are going for it right like this isn't just a small undertaking and uh and you get up and and you get going for the second day and just break down the the plan for the second day yeah i think one of the things i kind of failed to mention um sam and i sam and i both do we like to run uh-huh. And we do ultras in the summertime. So I think that combined combined with ski touring, we kind of, we have uh, the ability to do a little bit of suffering and I think kind of enjoy it a little bit. So we we like to push ourselves. And I think that's one of the things that we like about this traverse is it really pushes us physically and mentally to see how much your body can actually be put through in a day. Right. But um to get to your you know the the next day we uh we woke up um it was a really cold morning but the sun was out clouds had lifted it was pretty calm actually broke up camp started moving to our second peak Breitenbach and uh we could we noticed the wind started to really picking up probably some uh post frontal winds coming through and you could see the alpine was really getting stirred up there's lots of snow being moved around probably had like six to ten inches of new snow over the last couple weeks so really light stuff to get tossed around so we then started forecasting that we'd probably be running across wind slabs and if things if the sun came out We'd be uh, thinking about springtime problems, some wet, loose avalanches. So we started moving up Breitenbach. Um, when we were starting to get some cracking and we're kicking off, I'd say like 10 to 15 foot little um, 
little slabs. Uh, like kind of looked like maybe spindrift compacting just isolated spots on the slope wind slabs but uh not to not enough to really be threatening but enough to be on our radar and thinking that it was something we we're going to have to continue to have focus on we got to the top of Breitenbach looked we had a great 360 view of the range good weather and we're looking around for natural avalanches and not seeing anything i don't think we even saw one crown any any slabs didn't even see any wet loose happening yet still kind of i think maybe maybe just before noon and so we skied breitenbach which was amazing ski down put us back into the lost river side the west side of the range and we started to walk up to donaldson um peak and we're moving up through the basin of donaldson pretty big all this is above tree line there's not too many trees to begin with in the lost rivers and uh we had done this climb once before the previous year we had known the slope that it has these two rock ribs on the left and right side skinners left and right and the, those were covered this year with snow. Um, I was doing some pole pokes to kind of see how deep the snowpack was and um, kind of feel any layers out. I could feel that, you know, pushing through some hard snow and then punching out through the bottom. It was probably 120 to 140 centimeters for the height of snow. And uh, with this slope, I kind of, we and Sam had a brief discussion about it. We were starting to see wet, loose avalanches coming down on the south, e the east and southeast, working on the south. So the the um, the fishbone couloirs coming off of Donaldson kind of face uh, east. And those had already been running, kind of them were actively running. So we're like, okay, we'll stay away from those. This other slope is pretty plainer, the one we were thinking about going up. And really it's the easiest way to access the ridge line. Most of the Lost Rivers, like you, there's no safe way of getting up to the top of these peaks. They're all in avalanche terrain. And so we had a small discussion um that you know maybe we should stay in the middle of the slope that's where the deeper snowpack is it's funny like my mind was thinking about the deep slab problem but i don't think i ever really mentioned it i kind of was just like we'll kind of go into deep slab mindset of taking deeper um thicker spots of the slope where you're less likely to trigger that shallow trigger point so anyways, we're moving up that hillside. Sam was setting a beautiful skin track up the middle of it. And we got up, I think about 80 feet from the ridge line, you know, just about home free. And that's when I stopped and let Sam, I spaced out quite a bit, gave Sam maybe two kick turns ahead of me with space. Can you do that? Because we were one, about to. Can, sorry, my dog just shook. And it, <laughs> uh, can you just retake that? Like that's when I started giving Sam some space. Yeah. 
So that's when I started giving Sam some, some space because we were moving into uh, Wind's Lab territory near the top. And that was still, you know, primary thought on my mind. So that he was about to approach the ridgeline. And um, that's when I heard the collapse. And it was actually two different collapses. One was this really deep, rumbling sounding one. The sound that you hear when, and you know it's ripping down to that basal facet layer. And then another one was pretty faint. It sounded uh, like a shallower one. And uh, at that moment, I knew we were in the worst spot to be in an avalanche. You know, we were going uphill, locked into our toe pieces, skins on, really vulnerable state, no way to ski off the slab. And, you know, it is, it's pretty amazing. Like, it's quick, it happens just as quick as people describe it. I saw the slope fracture out in front of me. I saw lots of cracks. And I instantaneously just dropped down to my knees and um, used, kind of did a, a wrist motion to try to hit my Dinafit toe piece off on the front. I was able to get one ski off before it took me downhill. And, and uh, I was face downhill riding the avalanche. I tried to start swimming and that wasn't really working at all. It was a hard slab debris, and I quickly realized that swimming was not going to be the best technique to keep my head above the surface. So then I thought, what else can I do? Well, I need to keep my head out and keep my airway open. So I started pushing off the snow and doing these push-ups because I realized the snow was dense enough that I could push against it. So I was push-upping my way down the slope. And uh, it, it's crazy how you feel every little angle of the slope when you're riding it down. It, it felt like a water slide. You'd pick up some speed as it, the slope got a little steeper, slow down a little bit as it readjusted to something plainer. And then uh, it felt like forever. You know, it was long enough to think about what else should I be doing. I uh, really wish I was wearing an avalanche pack this day. Um, and then you feel it slow down and, and that's when my brain was like, okay, this is when you have to really fight hard, really do push-ups hard to keep your, keep yourself out of the snow as much as you can. Cause you know, that stuff's going to set up quick around you. So when it came to a rest, I, uh, quickly got up as quick as I could to, I was thinking a secondary avalanche might hit me. And my, the only thing I was buried was my right wrist, I think from elbow down was buried, but it was amazing. I was trying to throw, you know, get my arm out as quick as I could. And it's amazing how much it's set up, hmm. you know, when I got it out um, and free, I looked up kind of to see if there's any secondary avalanches that, you know, we might have remote triggered in the area or sympathetically released. And uh, once, once that, once I didn't see anything, it was calm. I then focused my attention to seeing where was Sam. Did Sam get caught too? Because um, you know I'd have to go into a search, rescue um, mindset next. But 
luckily Sam was up on top of the bed surface near the crown and uh, working his way down to me. So I signaled that I was okay to him, kind of checked to make sure I didn't have any broken bones or anything and and uh, couldn't believe that that whole event just happened right before me. Wow. So, so how, how far below Sam or below the upper crown were you when this thing was triggered? So I slid, I don't remember. One of the most important things that I learned about this is to write all this stuff down because it quickly gets out of your memory. Um, But I slid about two thirds of the way down the avalanche and I looked up and, you know, I saw at that point that there's two crowns and saw, you know, just pulling up some notes I have here. So I slid down about 1300 feet and about 800 feet, 800 vertical feet. Mm-hmm. So 1300 feet lengthwise, 800 foot drop to where I came to a rest. And, uh, just, just for our listeners, well, there's a link in the show notes of, of a blog post that JP wrote up with some really great photos. So if you're listening to this, I would suggest that you, you pull up those photos right now and probably be able to get a little bit more out of this talk. Um, so JP, this, this initially started as what I've heard you uh, recall is is probably a a persistent slab, right? Something that failed in the upper snowpack on potentially a near surface facet crust combo, right? And then with that weight of that avalanche um, coming down the slope, broke out a a deeper and larger avalanche that broke to the ground. Is that accurate? Yeah, yeah, I was. Definitely did a lot of thinking about what the avalanche problems were, and that that's exactly what happened. We triggered probably, you know, I, I think I would probably call it a storm slab because mm-hmm. it probably wasn't going to persist on past, you know, a few days, maybe a week. But either way, it, it failed on near surface facets, and just having that crown be uh you know about 1400 feet wide that was enough snow to trigger that deep persistent slab that have a little step down so uh that that's why i think i heard those two different collapses sure and so let's uh let's kind of just come off the surface here and and think about where sam was and what was happening to sam throughout this whole thing because he he probably punched the button up near the top, I would guess. Yeah, so Sam's recollection was as he was approaching the crest of that saddle, he felt this gust of wind. And he actually thinks that gust of wind was the slab ripping out from underneath him. So once he realized that was going on, he did pretty much the same thing. He tried to get his skis off as quick as he could. And uh, he was able to self-arrest into the to the bed surface there, and um, came up to rest. Had both skis missing, 
um, stood up and then kept eyes on me mm. to see uh, where I was going to come to arrest. So he'd know where to start his search after that. Right. So he's, he's about, you know, 1400 feet above you and, uh, and, and can see that you're okay. Um, where does your mindset go at this point? Um, you know, honestly, I was still thinking about how we were going to continue to traverse. Mm. It's pretty impressive, like how much adrenaline you have rushing through your brain or your body and, uh, what you start to think about, you know, I was still thinking I was going to do a traverse or we were going to finish the traverse. Um, yeah, just and, a little bump uh, in the road, you know? Yeah, it's a tad little speed bump. <laughs> and I was already missing a ski at this point, too. So, like, ski traversing at this point was like, you know, if we, if it wasn't enough to have just been an avalanche, I didn't even have a ski to continue on. Right. Um, but uh, I do also remember I wanted to boot pack back up to the crown and do a little crown profile because I was just, like, needed to figure out what just happened. Yeah. So, so, um, you guys probably reunited. Did Sam find his ski and, and come on down to you? Yeah, he was able to pick up, uh, his pieces as he came down, ski down to me, check in with me. And then we started to, uh, we used our inreaches to contact our wives and let them know that we were, what had just happened and that we were safe and, we started to figure out the exit plan, how to get out of there, which is going out this uh, V-slotted canyon, Jones Creek, which is just, I we had never been out there, but we had just heard that it was horrendous. So we then were like, okay, we got, well, let's get the hell out of here. And we're going down Jones Creek and just seeing rollerballs coming down on either side of us and just being like, all right, we have enough food, we have shelter, like we could just pitch the tent and wait for everything to freeze up tonight and go out. But, you know, after being through an event like that, you kind of are just ready to pull the plug mm -hmm. and get out of there. So we just, just kept moving fast through that lower section and keeping head on a swivel and, I think, you know, we just skied as fast as we could through that section to get out of the hazard. And you were on one, one ski. Oh yeah. So I, we, <clears throat> Sam found my second ski okay. uh, about a hundred feet down. So luckily I didn't have to do that. Nice. <laughs> the one ski out maneuver. Right. Um, and it sounds like you each had, uh, a spot or in reach device. Is that right? Yeah, so um, I borrowed a friend's spot, and Sam had his in reach, and we had them secured to our uh, our uh, shoulder strap of our backpack, so it was kind of in hand's reach. Yeah, I've never done that before, but it was kind of Sam's idea, and didn't really put too much thought into it. I was like, yeah, that sounds great. You know, we, we use in reaches all the time, guiding us our way to communicate with the outside world, but I never thought about kind of keeping it 
that close to me. Right. Well, and, and I often, I will always pretty much take an inreach with the group that I'm with. Um, I've never thought of, you know, if I'm in a more committing objective style trip of, of each partner having one. And I think that's a actually a really good idea. Yeah. You know, like you, your resources kind of get limited when it's just the two of you. Right. And so I think it is pretty nice if if you have that as an option to why not each carry it. I mean, that's such a, such a light piece of equipment that's has so many good uses. We were using it just to get weather updates, but you know, for this situation to, to tell people about what just happened when you're in such a remote spot, crucial to have with you. Sure. Um, so you guys make it out and, and get a pickup from somebody out, out in the middle of nowhere, I take it? Yeah, um, we luckily were on the right side of the range, um, uh, that being the west side. So that's actually closer to more civilization. You go on the east side, the Pissimeroi, it takes even longer time to access the mountains. It's pretty much all dirt road but it's a little bit more established on the west side. And Sam joined this uh, running team that previous year called Gage 20. And one of the coaches lives up in Chalice. So he was kind of in on uh, what we were doing. Those are actually his ATVs we used. And he was going to be kind of monitoring. We check in every once in a while, hitting the OK button. And... Um, they were kind of tracking our position. So he was the first person to uh, get out to us to kind of give us a bump back to our, our vehicles. Right on. Well, I'm glad both of you guys ended up okay. Um, and as we say, uh, a near miss where, you know, everybody's okay is, is maybe the best lesson, best gift you could get, right, in terms of, Totally. Lessons in the mountains. Um, what are some What are some take homes for you from this experience? Some lessons learned. Uh, I think uh, some of the bigger lessons that I learned was, you know, you're you're always looking for red flags out there. I never, I kind of always thought about the warming, the thaw instability as being more of the or or uh, wet avalanche problems, but I never really took into account how much and how quickly the sun's rays can consolidate a slab. Mm. And you know, I I think like just because I didn't have the previous experience of seeing uh, near surface faceting and its effects and how quickly it can be re or activated, um, that slab was only six to eight inches deep on top and didn't really seem like a big enough threat to me but just because that was the first day that that fresh snow had saw the sun and it was springtime that sun was up high and i think the ambient we didn't have thermometers with us but i, I imagine the ambient temperature was above freezing so just those factors and how quickly the snowpack can really change with uh, the sun's influence on it was, it was a 
that was something I took note of and hopefully, well, I shouldn't say hopefully, I know that I, I built up some intuition about that. And I'm already, this last season, I've already saw a couple slides that had that same characteristic and I'm noting it, you know, that time of year, late March, April, mm. that's, that's like when you're going to see a lot of those problems. And that's, that's going to be something I'm going to be paying attention about, especially when you're in those, um, those areas where you don't have too big of a margin to, to hang it all out there on. Right. Um, you, you know, you had mentioned that you're doing some pole pokes towards the, the top of that slope and did notice some, some weaker snow deeper in the snowpack, which is, which sounds like it's pretty typical for the lost river range. Um, what, you, you know, you, you mentioned that your mindset was more in a spring diurnal mindset. Um, what was your thought process when you noticed that there were these deeper weak layers did you think it was a possibility of triggering something closer to the ground or was that not really in the forefront of your mind i think there was a lot of factors going on in my brain one you know was how tired i was and not really thinking straight uh we had a huge day before that and i think i was kind of just kind of limping along and just following the route that we previously done it previously worked out for us so i think i had was kind of thinking along those lines um thinking about a whole season of dealing with a deep persistence lab and not seeing it in re like activate it took needing a lot of load on it to get it to be active. I think I was kind of thinking that I was seeing the same type of deal in the Lost River Range, even though the snowpack was a lot thinner and I shouldn't have been thinking that way. I think I was like, that's when I was starting to think about, you know, kind of going into that gray area of how to manage a deep slab problem, trying, you know, some thought behind it is to, to pick the thickest part of the slab less likely to hit that shallow spot and i think that's what i was thinking about and i was thinking that i might have felt a little committed at that point we were like already at the top of the slope mm. and you know we were already in it uh you know i realized that those are not great things to be thinking about but just kind of how being that tired it's it's hard to to make those decisions to to pull back when you're already you're in it sure sometimes like just minimizing your exposure is putting your head down and moving through some terrain right yeah i mean at that that point where i was just like well we just walked up this whole slope yeah you know now we just kind of need to keep moving and get out of it i right. thought i was managing it by spacing out and you know our arguably like spacing out might have actually caused me more harm in that avalanche because um maybe if i was closer to sam i would have been able to self-arrest like he did on the bed surface mm. mm -hmm. but i think you're not really thinking about that when you're thinking you have a a problem in the snowpack that's near the surface versus one that's buried at the bottom All right 
Um, you said that both you and Sam pretty much instinctively went down to punch your toe pieces off um, of your tech bindings to to get out of your skis. And I think um, I think on the up track we are often are more vulnerable, both because of that it's near impossible to ski off of a slab with your skins off or skins on in walk mode, but also just the amount of time that we spend on that slope, right? Um, Mm -hmm. What are some other things that you were thinking about when being caught in an avalanche, you know, and and being in that very vulnerable position? Um, You highlighted doing push-ups. Anything else that was going through your head? Yeah, you know, and I described this, what I was, what I first did to people, especially maybe people that aren't in the backcountry quite a bit, maybe just got a level one and they're just kind of working their way through getting to be more advanced and and traveling out there. They thought I was crazy that the first thing I thought about was like dropping down to my feet and getting rid of my skis. But, you know, when, when you teach, I think one of the important lessons that I learned with all this is how important those checklists are that we, we advocate for in avalanche courses, teaching people how to do self-rescue and perform avalanche rescue on a daily basis to clients. That, you know, I, I memorized all that and it's just second nature to go through that. And that's what you need to develop in your brain in order to have in those moments of high stress, like those get activated because they're second nature. And I think that's an important thing to to carry out, you know, whether you're a recreationalist or a professional is to uh, build those checklists, go through them, because you never know, like you're not always going to start at one. Mm. You know, one for me was, you know, I, I ar- people would argue, but, you know, what we teach people is yell that there's an avalanche. Like I was not yelling that to Sam, like if you didn't, feel that avalanche start like it was just kind of pointless two i was you know try to ski off of it like you mentioned there's no chance that you're going to ski off of it with skins on in walk mode um so you know then you just move down the list till something that makes sense to do and you know i was like this thing's ripping to the ground it's going to be a huge avalanche what do i need to do to survive i need to get these things off of my feet because I've been told that they're going to be anchors that drag me down to the bottom. And that is something that I don't want to happen to me. Mm-hmm. So having those checklists is just like super important to, to, I can't stress it enough to learn those and get those ingrained in your, in your mind. Sure. It's a really good point. JP, you've talked a little bit about, um, or I guess written about, um, the difference in your risk tolerance from when you're ski guiding to when you're on a personal ski objective. Um, talk a little bit about your your risk tolerance going into this objective and and um, and how you tried to manage that. And then maybe even take it a step further and talk about you know oftentimes in ski guiding we can utilize terrain margins to keep to minimize our exposure right manage the risk utilizing the terrain margins what sort of margins did you feel like you had 
within this ski objective? Sorry, I know that's a long question. <laughs> yeah, maybe we'll start out at the beginning of it and uh, work our uh, way work through. through to the end. So, yeah, my mindset definitely and changes and risk tolerance changes when when I'm guiding clients. Usually, their risk t- tolerance is way lower, and they're essentially paying you to make all the hard decisions, whether that's finding the good snow for them or, um, you know, t- reading the snowpack and having an understanding of what is going to slide that day and what isn't going to slide. And, you know, you know, use those, those train margins in your favor based on that. But, you know, then you kind of shift into personal or free skiing days where you're not working. And, uh, you know, my, my risk definitely goes, my tolerance goes up because I, unlike when I'm guiding my guests, I don't necessarily, you know, I'm kind of getting to the game, the part of the game where I can choose who I get to go ski with, but I'm still getting a lot of first time people that have never skied or never been in the backcountry before. So like I mentioned before, you're doing a 20 minute talk of how they're going to save you. And if you get caught in an avalanche, if you make the wrong decision that day and that slope does go and that's kind of a scary thing that you have to come to grips with as a guide. And I think you should be changing your, your terrain that you go into based on that, you know, know that those people that you're with probably aren't going to remember everything you just, you know, told them. And hopefully you're handing out a little pamphlet that has a cheat sheet on there. So when they go half, if they ever have to do that, they can resort to that. But, you know, just keeping, I keep those things in mind quite a bit, you know, and I I ski tour a lot with women that are in their late 60s and 70s that are ripping skiers and can still ski tour. But I know the reality is they're probably not going to be able to dig me out. So I choose the terrain I go into um, based on the avalanche problems that day. and, And I give myself a pretty wide berth wide margin based on that now shifting to uh when i go out for myself i get to choose who i go to ski with and i'm choosing people that i know are going to have my back usually they're guides um i know they're going to do everything they can if you get caught in the avalanche like they're going to be there um they're not going to give up till they get you out and uh you know that because of that, I'm willing to take on um, more risk and go into these bigger objectives because they're meaningful for me. I, I I like skiing steep terrain. I like pushing my body and seeing how far it can get because I think that's that's good personal growth. And who knows, one day maybe I have a client that wants to go up there. So putting yourself through that those situations and figuring out how to make it work like that's important to do before you then take someone else up there because when you're guiding you can't really be thinking about your energy level and i mean it's important to keep this in mind but you basically have to be well equipped and know what's going on and have most of your focus on the snow and your client so hopefully that kind of answers 
um, your question, Caleb. I I have a pretty huge change in mindset when I'm uh, when I'm ski touring for myself or recreationally versus guiding. Yeah, that's a great response, and and I guess just to take it one step further, the kind of the last part of the question would be, how do you? What are your margins in a big objective ski traverse like this? Because you have a pretty well-defined, predefined um, tour plan, right? And, and, and so I guess if you don't have as much of a terrain margin, which you can always go back down your skin track. Yeah, we, we get that. But like what other margins were you thinking about? Or, or maybe do you think about now aside from terrain? Yeah. Like I, what, or what you think about now, because I think my margins were different, um, a couple of years ago before this slide than how they are now. And like you mentioned, uh, you know, we don't really, if you're going into areas like the lost rivers and there's no real safe ways to go up, you can't always use terrain um, margins on your side. It, it, it becomes more straightforward, um, but it becomes really hard to make those decisions because you're essentially, it's uh, a, a go or no go decision. You're either gonna go up there because you feel 100% good about it, or you don't feel good about it, and you're bailing and you're pulling the plug. And bailing and pulling the plug, especially on a, a, a tour that you put a lot of effort into it's um a lot of time commitment you know all these things that run into human factors it's hard to come to that decision to say no hmm. and i think it's a lot easier for me now to make that decision but in the time it it's it's hard especially when you're tired um i wouldn't say i was bonking but it was definitely really hard to make decisions so I think, you know, looking on it now is like make almost making like a contract and, you know, whether or not it has, it's a written contract or a verbal contract between you and your partner, like coming up with things that if you come across these situations, how are you going to react to them? And it making them simple, yes or no answer. Don't, don't leave them. So it's easy to talk yourself into going through it when maybe it's not appropriate to do it that season. Um, yeah. Like making that, making some kind of contract like that, you know, like taking for instance, you know, this trip was, I kick myself on a daily basis thinking about this, that I didn't even dig, you know, dig a serious pit to even look at just like build some kind of snowpack structure um, visually that I can, you know, start to track doing pole pokes and just maybe test a little bit of the reaction. And I'm not saying test the reaction with snow pits to decide whether or not it's safe, but like this, some people need to see, see some of those tests to kind of um, see where they want to go from that there out there on out. And I think from the way my brain works, seeing snow pits it's gonna help look at that structure being like wow this is complete crap um this is exactly what we should be 
avoiding, um, maybe we should be pulling the plug on this. Mm -hmm. Uh, I'd I'd like to think that that's what my decision would have been if I had did some more homework into a spot, you know, that deserved homework, this remote range that I hadn't seen the snowpack at all that season. Um, so coming up with things like that will kind of help manage, I think your, your thought process a little bit clearer. So JP moving past this event, how did it affect you mentally? And, and did you deal with any kind of post-traumatic stress issues following this event? Yeah. So I went through pretty big debriefing process and Maybe I'll get more into that um, later on. But, yeah, I I was concerned that, you know, maybe I had PTSD from this. I'd I'd heard about that before, about mountaineers, alpinists, being in these life-changing events. And um, I was concerned that it was going to, you know, take a hold of my life and or change the way I guided in the future. And I didn't want to have any doubt in my decision making in the future. I wanted to to know that I wasn't affected or if I was affected, what am I going to do to change that? So I downloaded this great audiobook, The Body Keeps the Score. Hopefully I don't butcher his name by Vessel Vanderkock. And he, you know, my wife is a social worker and I explained you know, my thoughts and feelings to her and, and told her that I read this book and apparently it's like one of the best books out there. So highly recommend reading this, but he, uh, he goes into a lot of talk of about PTSD and all the different avenues and how you can, how you can get it. But, um, you know, I was worried that the next time I heard a collapse, was it going to trigger something in my mind? You know, you've, I've heard so many collapses before in my life that you kind of almost get a little numb to them since the first time you hear it. But when one changes and you actually get an avalanche, you know, that that could be pretty life changing and maybe cause some trauma. So um, I kind of looked into this and uh, my wife explained to me that because I completed the cycle, and I'll talk about the cycle in a second. You know, it's probably why I didn't get PTSD from this. And some of the things that activate PTSD is when your body senses some kind of harm, this alarm system goes off in the brain and it goes to these pre-programmed escape plans that are based from some of the oldest part of your brain, kind of like the primitive part of your brain that keeps you from dying. And it shuts down the conscious state of your mind and it allows you it it makes the body react by running away hiding fighting or freezing up so you might have heard this term the fight flight or freeze response and once that response is successful um you know you escape the danger we return to our regular programming our normal way of life your body completes that and it's okay it's you know all the chemicals get replaced back into the brain but when you don't finish that that succession or it's blocked some somehow that's when you know trauma sets in 
and you become stuck in that moment. Your brain keeps sending these chemicals and signals um, to your your uh, your body that it it's reliving that event over and over again. So you have to, and there's no way to escape that without you know, without becoming without your brain then thinking it's safe again, or maybe going through lots of um, therapy for that. So it's a pretty interesting, it's all, PTSD is really interesting. And, you know, to kind of relate this back to the avalanche, when I heard that collapse, it triggered my brain into this fighting response. And, you know, because I had heard that sound many times before, I knew what the consequences were going to be if I didn't get out of that. So, and because I didn't get buried, my mind acknowledged that I survived it and there was no longer a threat. You know, the cycle completed itself. Um, when I looked up, there weren't any avalanches coming down. So that was like my, my mind coming at ease and being like, okay, we, we no longer have harm um, on, in, our, uh, in our, our view right now. And this can happen on the flip side of the two. So people that witnessed the event, like Sam, I, you know, he could have gone through any one of these responses too. And we haven't really talked to, um, we haven't talked in depth about this, so I don't want to speak for him. But, you know, people could go into a freeze position and uh, in you know, that is when your body can't think, it doesn't go to fight or flight. And the the brain doesn't perceive that the threat is escaped. So you're just kind of, you're, you're stuck. And like an example of this is actually um, possums. So when possums fear like they're going to die, they pass out. And they pass out, so their um whoever the predator is just thinks they're dead and moves on and they'll actually go into this like spasm afterwards and slowly work their way out so it's not really a good thing to go into freeze it's actually probably the worst one but you can go into any one of these things and until you complete it your body isn't going to give up until it knows it's safe again so relating that back to the avalanche you're involved with how was that cycle completed? Yeah, so that I completed the cycle when the avalanche came to rest. I stood up, I looked around. There wasn't any other sympathetically released ones. You know, we we're in this big alpine bowl where lots of slopes could have been released on top of me. But once I saw that there was no other avalanche coming at me, my body was, it realized it was safe and the cycle was completed. Mm hmm. So moving a step forward, um, you mentioned debriefing. Um, it seems like you and Sam are doing a great job of, of still debriefing this event and sharing it with others. Um, you know, uh, other steps that you're taking, anything else to kind of learn from this experience and share it? Yeah, I would, I would just say if you ever have a close call like this, um, or even if you haven't, like a good exercise, one, I'll, I'll get to this in a second, but debrief it as soon as you can. 
it's amazing what the mind's perception is of something after it's happened. We start to forget things. So by you documenting every little thing that you remember on paper, then you can look back on it and re remember it and for the future and you know build up that intuition and di digest what just happened for me i had to really dig into what the avalanche problems were because for my mind i needed to know what i missed on, on that you know on that uh in that part of the the problem or the part of the the situation and then i would say um, on the flip side, look at all your close calls. Go through all the close calls you've had in your lifetime. We did a great exercise this last year um, with one of the guide services I work for, where we went through all of our close calls and tried to relate any biases um, or heuristics attached to them. And you start to see a pattern, or maybe most of us will see a pattern from all that. And you can learn to combat what you're seeing based on that pattern. You know, what do I need to change in my lifestyle to keep this problem from happening in the future? Or maybe keep it from, if it keeps happening, how do I stop it? So search for any evidence that, you know, that might link to that. Um, and then, you know, when you're out there in the field, like I was mentioning before, maybe you make some kind of contract with your partner that you're out there for, but talk about any uncertainty that's out there and search for evidence that might contradict what you're thinking is going on in the snowpack. Always be looking for what you're missing. And I know, Caleb, you brought this up before in, in the podcast before. You're always, you know, what am I missing here? I think that's a really good question to be always asking. Maybe if I was asking that more um, than getting so um, so drawn onto the, those two avalanche problems, I should have been focusing on the bigger picture. What else could be going on in the snowpack? What am I missing here? Right. Well, uh, you know, just looking at your at your blog post here, you know, you wrote this three days after the avalanche happened. And so I think that speaks volumes to, um, your dedication to processing this event, um, and sharing it with others. And, and for that, the community commends you. Um, JP, any, any closing thoughts here? Uh, no, I don't, I don't think I have anything much more to add. I think you're doing a great job here. I, I think, uh, you know, it, it was super important for me to pass this on to everyone else. Mm -hmm. And, you know, I, I understand that some people, especially when this is done as your profession and you screwed something up in your profession, it might be hard to do that. But just think of the opposite side of it. Get past that that we have so much value, there's so much value in the close call that you have that someone else can learn from. And, you know, I, I learned so much on how just to swim or when it's necessary to swim in an avalanche from things that I was taught and how I should teach people 
And now after being in it, and I'm not saying you should go and get caught in an avalanche to figure this out, but it just helps me teach people more from, from the experience that I have. So I think, you know, my biggest piece of advice is to get past being scared of how other people are going to think. The more of us that go out there and tell our stories, the easier it's going to be to do that. And we're going to have that much bigger of a platform and database to dive into to figure out how to not do these things in the future. JP, that was really well said. Um, And I think with that, we'll, uh, we'll kind of wrap things up here. And, and again, I appreciate you sharing your story with the community and, and your dedication to the craft is, is very evident. So um, hope to see you out there on the skin track at some point and uh, all the best of luck with your expanding family and, and working through these trying times of the COVID-19 pandemic. Thanks, Caleb. All right. Cheers, man. Cheers. Well, we sure hope that you enjoyed that episode and that you're enjoying all the content that we're putting out for the Avalanche Hour podcast. If that's the case, please subscribe to the podcast as well as give us a rating and a review on Apple Podcasts if you could. It does really help. Um, And don't forget to tell a friend. Tell that friend to tell a friend. Spread the word. Help us uh, reach the widest audience we can. Don't forget to give us a follow on the socials. We are at the Avalanche Hour Podcast on Facebook and Instagram. And that's the best way to keep up to date with the newest releases of episodes. Our artwork was created by Mike T. You demand T. If you have any logo needs, any artwork needs, head on over to Mike T's website, www.miket.com, and check him out. Music on today's episode was performed by Ketza. You can find more of their tracks at ketza.uk. Until next time, stay tuned, stay safe, and keep having fun out there. Cheers. Cheers.